Welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I am your host, Jeff Z, Jeffrey Salaji. Grateful to have you back with the show today. Bonus episode number seven. My guest is Tobin Mayo, musician and longtime friend. Tobin, it was amazing to have you on the show. Thank you for this honest and important conversation around death and dying and sharing the stories of your parents. And listeners, I really appreciate having you on board. There will be some information at the end of the show about how you can support this podcast. For now, we'll dive into the stories about Tobin and his late father, Norm Mayel. Please do enjoy looking into the beyond with the thoughtful Tobin Mayel. Tobin Mayo, welcome back to the How Humans Work podcast. I'm really glad to have you on the show today. Thanks, Jeff. It's uh, it's wonderful to be back. It's quite an honor. Thank you. This is an interesting bonus episode we've lined up, and the conversation today is really about death and dying, and about the journey you've been on the past year and a half. It's interesting to talk about death. It's interesting to talk about dying and the energy and that comes along with that. I think it's a conversation worth having to see what are some of the nuances, what are some of the the actual dynamics that happens when when death shows up in our lives around us. So this is a big invitation to you today to share your story about your father, Normael, and your mother, Christine. She has several last names. I'm trying Waddell. Is that the right one? I got yeah. it. Okay, good. Good. Yeah. yeah. You got it. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Somebody has been paying attention. Uh, well, I'm inspired actually right now to start by connecting to you. Uh, I'm remembering when your father passed and it was many years ago and it was long before I was looking at my parents' mortality and I'm not, I'm not going to try to tell your story, but I can tell you what was really important to me about what you relayed after your father passed. And, you know, to keep it real simple, in case it's something you want to expand on, you talked about a transmission. And I thought a lot about that, having no experience or very little experience of anybody really important to me passing. Um, and so I didn't know what to expect, but your words really, uh, affected me. I thought a lot about what that might feel like if that was to occur for me. And so it's a nice starting point. This has just been a conversation you and I've been in for quite a while. And, and then I had a solid year or so of watching my father's health decline and, I had a real strong sense that he was going to he was going to pass relatively soon and so I had a lot of questions in my heart about was there conversations that we should have or could have um, and my journey with him was far along 
in terms of me accepting the man that he is, the man that he was. And so the surprise for me was that there weren't a lot of conversations or words that felt like they needed to be spoken. And so it was nice to kind of release that as he got closer and closer to the doorway of, of death. Um, and so there were far more subtle transmissions and conversations that occurred. I think it's worth even bringing a few in. Um, he wasn't a man who spoke a lot about the internal processes. And um, I became that man or was always that man and am growing in that way. And, and so, yeah, a good example would be somewhere in the past, like somewhere in the last couple of weeks when he was mostly in bed and not really capable of much else. Um, I came in and he was sleeping and my stepmother, Judy, went and took a walk. And so it was just Norm and I in the house and he was asleep and I decided I would just lay down on the floor next to him or next to his bed and wait and see what happened. Uh, I didn't know if he'd wake up. I didn't know if we'd talk. I just thought, where's the best place to be? Well, just with him. And he woke and uh, he turned slightly and he looked over and found me. I sat up and uh, <laughs> his eyes got real big. And he said, uh, you're here. And I said, yeah, I'm here. And he said, where is everybody else? And I said, they're doing other stuff. And he said, wow. And I just, that wow just really stuck with me. It was like, he was so impressed that it was just me. And I didn't have an agenda. So I just waited for him to speak and, he started to tell me where he was off in, I suppose, the dreamland or the places that he went when he was uh, laying in bed for so many hours at that time. And the things that he told me will, you know, stay with me forever. It was like he was, he was able to say, I like in that moment, I almost died. Uh. And, uh, and, and he, and he said like, I, I know what's going on. You know, this is kicking my ass. <laughs> I mean, it was a real, um, uh, it was like a, a real epiphany for me at that time to not try to get him to be in any realm other than the one he was in. So it's just a, all of a sudden, you know, I speak a lot. So I was like, I don't, I'm not going to add to this. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to be the one to lead him in any direction. And, and so there was just a, a space of listening. And therefore I felt like he was able to say a lot. And he then asked me if he could get out of bed and go outside. And so, um, you know, we shuffled around and got his clothes on and got him to the back porch and sat him down. And then we sat on the porch and listened to birds in the trees, uh, babies crying, maybe ar around the corner. And I watched his face. It was, it was a delight to see him hear those sounds 
I could see it reverberating inside him. Um, and then the train went by and then he said, uh, would you shave me? I had never shaved him before. Um, I thought back to my stepfather many years ago, who I was very close to, who asked me to shave him and kind of clean up his face. Uh, the last time I saw him, and I thought, wow, what is it? What is this going on? You know? And so I, I, I said, well, yeah, sure. Um, and so we got out the mm. things and, uh, mm. and so we had this experience of him being outside, you know, with like a towel around him <laughs> and, and me very carefully shaving him. And, you know, there's moments looking into each other's eyes, that intimacy being that close and me, you know, uh, taking care of his face. Uh, and then when he was all shaven and clean, he, he, he was, he looked really happy. Beautiful stories. I myself had to shave my dad, but he was unconscious. He'd been in the hospital for a while. And, uh, I just, I knew he liked a clean shave. So I'm like, okay, he's growing here. He can't take care of himself. So I, I did it. I did it for him. And it was, it was a profound act of intimacy. It's like, you know, yeah. it was amazing. Um, okay. So there was something you said there as you were telling the story about, ah, the acceptance of your dad, you'd already had found a way to accept who he was. And in this, you know, miraculous moment of him almost transitioning and then waking up to find you, you know, here, uh, mm. cause we're super close. We know each other's stories really well, but in, in, in the ritual of this conversation to talk about the arc of your relationship with finding your dad, cause you, this amazing way to find each other in the days before dying and have this kind of presence and intimacy and it sounds like not only a gift to him, but a gift to you just to be in that, in that place and uh, be that wide open. And that's one mm -hmm. of the things I found around death and birth is the, the opening of perception and the opening of the, the doorways of the energy. But talk a little bit about the arc of your relationship with your father, if you would, and how you were able or not able to find each other um, before, early on and through your life. And then why this pivot and this moment became what it was. And, and then where did, where did it end up? So in the arc of your story here in the center mm. place, does that make sense? Yeah. Does that yeah, sound that's, right? That's Is that really helpful? Yeah. Yeah. I feel a structure growing, <laughs> uh, just in the way that you've, you've, uh, you've laid it out. Yeah. So, so my parents split when I was about three, it was probably 1974. I lived with my mother uh, and my father was a musician and he was on the road a lot and he didn't in fact even have a place, a dwelling, uh, that I could visit him until sometime in the early eighties. Um, so a lot of my time with him and my, my dear stepmother, Judy was, um, you know, in uh, a hotel or in a club and I'd stay the night in, in hotels, uh, when they were on the road, which they were, you know, 40 plus weeks out of the year. And so that's just to say that my time with my dad was few and far between. Mm -hmm. And we didn't often know quite how to come back in. 
and I went through a lot of uh, difficulty with missing my father. And then he'd come and he was in my space and I wanted so badly something to make me feel connected to him. And so I, unfortunately I went through a lot of, uh, I went through a lot of pain every time it was time for him to go again. And it was both because some connection was formed and then it was time to let it go again or a connection I was hoping for didn't occur. And then it was time to say goodbye again. Both things were hard. Um, and that went on for a lot of years. So that really was a foundational, uh, experience for me around father. How did your young self conceive of him as a figure? Like what did he seem like to you being intermittent and then unable to maybe secure that attachment or that clarity of relationship? What kind of figure did he end up being in those early years? On the one hand, he was, uh, he had incredible magnetism. Um, <laughs> yeah. he, you can see this. I'll go put this post of his, uh, that photo of him with the mustache and the hat on the webpage. So people yeah. can check him out. Yeah. Yeah. People wanted to know what he was up to. What, what was this mysterious guy doing? Um, and like I said, because he didn't overwhelm anybody with his emotional life, the process that, you know, he kept to himself most of the time. Um, that only added to the mystery and the magnetism. And in social situations, he was charming and funny and um, really different from the guy who oftentimes liked to just sit alone and ponder things, think about history, think about the mysteries of the world. In a social setting, you know, Christmases and, and what other gatherings that I'd find myself both with my mother, my father, my stepmother and anyone else. Um, he was just funny and, uh, and, and smart, a great sense of humor. Um, but those things as a child, I never felt necessarily connected to or emotionally fed by. I was kind of like, wow. You saw it though. You saw those things. I saw it. I really appreciate it now. Um, but back to your, I think more to the point of your question is, you know, for me, there was this experience of the bandaid had to get ripped off over and over and over again. And so the hardest part was probably that I had this real deep need to be seen and loved by him. Uh, but I experienced him as somebody who was mostly concerned with what he cared about. And I could feel kind of under his thumb when he spoke uh, like there wasn't room for me. I was just supposed to listen. Um, and so that was very, very hard. Uh, and so I, connecting, getting into the arc. The point is, is that, and I can expand on things more if you have questions, but I'm, I'm seeing it now. What, what I want to move toward is that I had to, as a young adult, start to, to, confront that he wasn't going to be the person that as a child, I really wanted him to be. And I needed to move on and I needed to let go. Not knowing that or fully, fully able to articulate that. Um, it really was when I started to go uh, to the men's groups of, of Michael Mead um, 
where you and I start our journey back in 99. So now I'm like coming toward the Saturn return of life. And after a few years of doing that work and really feeling like I had finally found a place for me that was very different from the kind of healing journey my mom was on and entirely 180 degrees away from what it seemed my dad was interested in. I was able to finally come to him and say, I'm done trying to get you to be somebody that you're not. And I don't want to waste my time hoping that you'll become somebody, become the father I really want. Mm -hmm. And the really powerful part about this was how much it affected him. And I, I didn't know until this time that I was applying an incredible amount of pressure, both in probably stated and unstated ways, um, that now he was released from. And I know that he was happy in that conversation at the time, but it was amazing that every five years or so he would say, Hey, do you remember that day when you, you came back from Mendocino from the, the men's group and you, and you told me that you accepted me for who I am and you were going to do what you needed to do, but you, we were, we were just going to be, we were going to be men together. You were going to let me be the man that I am. You were going to figure out the man you are. He said, that was one of the best days of my life. So that's where it started to really kind of break, like the mold and the old patterning started to break loose. And I was able to really go off on my journey yeah. and accept that he wasn't coming along for that part. So as the years went by, with that pressure relieved, he and I you know, found a few ways to spend time together. I golfed with him a bit because we golfed together with him that. one time. And Max, remember that? <laughs> <laughs> that right. was his thing though. He right. had, he had that kind of golf practice, right? That was a thing for him. You know, it's interesting. I'm glad it came up because the truth of the matter is, is that, that uh, golf ironically for my father was probably at least from where I, I stand the most, the most spiritual activity, uh, that he found later in life. It wasn't about the clubs. It wasn't about the fashion. It wasn't about the pizzazz or the, the, the class stuff around it for him. He, he found a book, I think it was called um, Golf in the Kingdom. Golf in the Kingdom. Thank you. And it was profound for him. He, he read it. He probably read it more than once. Um, he went to Scotland uh, to play St. Andrews and he had mystical experiences. And um, there's, a, there's a wonderful picture uh, that Judy may have taken of him at St. Andrews and he's, you know, getting ready to swing and there's all this space around him. The, the green is open. It's a black and white photo. It feels very old in that way. Uh, and iconic. And you can see the building of the, of probably the clubhouse behind yeah. him. 
and the sun has hit the the golf club and it's like uh, exploding with reflectivity. Yeah. Beautiful. That's a great image. Yeah. And it makes me curious yeah. about how you, so you, your masculinity, your manhood, your identity as a man and your way, and then how you started once you let go of the internal pressure for your dad to be something different. What are other ways you think your dad expressed and knew the mysteries? Cause you said he had a lot of mystery and a lot of deep thought, but also his spirituality. Where, where have you discovered or found your father in a way you couldn't before you let go of that pressure, that internal pressure for him to be somebody different? Great question. Let me back up slightly. There was some other piece to this that I forgot. And I think it really helps move us forward. Um, I had such amazing experiences in Mendocino with men and seeing uh, how beautiful men can be, how beautiful men are. And the part of male or masculine beauty that our culture either doesn't understand or uh, is too afraid to embrace. And I wanted him to come with us. And there were a few years, you know, over the course of like the 15 or so that, that I was going up there a lot that I came down and invited him to come. And what I'm getting to is that he, he didn't say no or yes for the first couple invitations, but eventually he said, you know, I understand that this is really important to you. And, but he said, for me, it, it, it's really scary because, uh, you know, and I don't really want to do therapy. I'm afraid that those things will be like, uh, an onion. And I'm afraid that if we start peeling away the layers of the onion, we'll never know if it's going to end. <laughs> And I realized that's the big distinction between us, right? It's like my mom's all about uh, peeling away the layers of the onion. uh, And I was starting to find my way of embracing that idea that, well, I want to grow and I want to understand myself. And I don't mind the sense of exposure and vulnerability, provided it's in the right setting. And I found a setting that worked. He didn't want to do that. He wanted to keep it closer to the vest. I'm also thinking that there's like a steadiness in that, like the the upside of that resistance of peeling things away and creating uncertainty is you, you stay steady in, in what you're doing and what you know. Mm-hmm. You think he was a steady man? Yeah. I describe him as, as somebody who was in his own moment. He had this uh, gift and power of being in his own moment. And that's beautiful a lot of us want, want something like that. Um, you know, to not be distracted by the noise of the world, um, to have that time where you, you really can explore and your, your artistic side, um, and your creative side. So do you think that was part of his spirituality that particular Ah. mode or what did, what have you discovered about that? Knowing that Mendocino and the unwrapping of the onion isn't his mode. So what, what have you found in your, about your father that you, you, you didn't know in addition to this practice of golf as a, a place of unity with life? Yeah, I think 
what that gift gave him uh, while it was hard for somebody like me. It was just like, well, if you're in your zone, how much space do you have for me to be with you? And do I have to do the things that you care about in order for me to spend that time with you? That was hard. But what I think it gave him was uh, a steadiness, like you said, to he found things like golf and music, especially. And also I'm learning a lot about what other art he did beyond music. There was a lot of time, I think, pondering the great mysteries of the world, death, where we're going. uh, What does it all mean? uh, How much can we influence anything? And he wrote music. He arranged some other music. He collaborated with folks, uh, band members of, of, you know, bands of yesteryear and, uh, and his wife. And he also created a, um, he created something that he called stamp out art. And it was, uh, literally art made from stamps. He had a vast stamp collection. Uh, he'd pencil in a few things if he needed a little bit of something to like, you know, help the, the, the arrangement or the, the composition, but most of it was stamps and like a lot of songs that he wrote, there was in the pictures a sense of looking into the beyond uh, without identifying anything like that's God or that's the reason or but it was more like opening to the possibilities uh, looking out toward he had vanishing points almost all of them had a vanishing point so you had a sense of looking out to uh, a great expanse and then wondering what is on the other side. So I got a sense of what's next, but maybe you do too. <laughs> should we dive into some music? I think we should dive into your dad's musical journey. And also what's right next to that for me is, you know, you ended up sitting in his seat and, and the, tr- and we start mm-hmm. talking about the transmission and the energy that starts to come when somebody uh, crosses over that happened for me with my dad. Mm-hmm. It happened to me during the dying process, just sitting with him, witnessing him, looking at him and literally feeling like I became him for a period of time and, and knew him in a way I could never know in any other condition in our lives uh, during those six days, seven days. So, um, so there's, there's that part of that transition and that transmission. And I'm really curious about that because yeah, your dad was, uh, you know, a semi well-known musician a bit of a rock star, you know, like you said, mag- magnet- magnetic and a lot of charisma at that level, a lot of, uh, yeah, that kind of private wisdom that he had about him. Mm, well you know? said. And so you ended up, yeah, let's talk about that musical story of who your dad was and as it relates to um, his passing over and, and, the, and the gift to you, like what happened in your life in relationship to music too. Does that seem right? It feels right to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Well, so I became a drummer uh, sometime around the age of 14, like legitimately got a drum set and started playing. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't consciously about my father. Um, we weren't playing music together. Like I said, I didn't grow up in his house. Uh, so he wasn't teaching me music. And so finding my own drumming by going to later on to West Africa to study West African traditions 
it was all um, my own arc, uh, musically speaking. And he and I only found a couple of moments uh, where we could play together. Um, and those were really, really powerful, but they might have only happened two or three times in the course of our life. And when he passed, he didn't leave a will, but Judy knew based on conversations that they had had, you know, what he wanted to give to who, and he has three children. So she told me he wants you to have his drums, which I don't think I'd ever played. Um, and when we sat down only a few weeks after he died, August 13th, 2022, the question was, how do we memorialize this this man. And I call him a below the horizon sort of person, astrologically speaking, like all of his planets are below the horizon. Um, and we've talked a little bit about how his process is mostly hidden to us, maybe sometimes quite hidden to himself. Uh-huh. And so the question of how to, uh, what kind of a tribute do we throw for somebody, um, to honor, to honor their life experience. I know that he continued to practice and play drums all his life, even when there was, there seemed to be no, uh, no promise of ever getting back into the, into the, you know, into the light, uh, of earlier feelings of, uh, fame and recognition. But he, like you said, he was steady. He continued to put that beat down. And, um, so we thought it's gotta be musical. Um, so we decided that what we should do is we should form a band, practice songs that he wrote, that he loved. We thought, well, I mean, he played drums for spirit in the sky, the the big hit with Norman Greenbaum. We got to end with that. Like if we could pull that off, we've got to end the night with that. So we kind of, we could see where we wanted to end up. Now it was a question of how do we do it? Who's going to play what instrument? Um, Judy is a keyboardist and a singer and she wrote some songs for herself. She also wrote some songs with Norman. So it was like, we, we have a lot of great places to draw from. So we started making phone calls to um, ex-band mates of Norman's. And, and then thought about the musical people in our lives who uh, cared about him and might want to be involved. And so in the end, we came up with, uh, you know, the core three was, was uh, Judy, myself, and my longtime friend, Mike Whitwer, uh, who I started playing drums with at like 14 years old. And, and then our bigger group became about seven. And in the end, I think we had nine people who made this live tribute happen and the experience of practicing together i felt like i was literally experiencing what my dad experienced with all the years of like band uh like the fighting the bickering the (laughs) moments of like oh i think we figured something out i it was so transformational Mm. um what changed there what, were, what changed? I, I realized that um, there was a whole side to my dad I didn't know, which was that one that has to navigate. I, now, now that I realize it, like band 
relationships are incredibly intimate because everybody's trying to figure out what part of this thing they're going to help happen and egos are big and um, there's a lot going on around, you know, how, how to um, get your, get your will in the creative process. Everybody's got a different vision. It's really intense. So your awareness changed about what your dad went through is what I'm hearing. Mm. And, and you're kind of yeah. seeing and feeling and tasting and the most visceral of all the senses, smelling the, the room of egos and creative energy and creative tension. Yeah. What else on the inside? Yeah. What, about, what about like in your relationship to him or in your heart or the feeling of your own being? also changed as you entered this, you know, rehearsal zone and this creative zone? If that's a fair question, is that a fair question? That's a great question. Yeah. And two very different things were happening at the same time. Um, one was the, uh, the realization that whether it was something he was really good at or not, that experience, those challenging experiences of trying to uh, work on a creative project with all of these. Uh, and I know a lot of these people, some of them are very difficult to work with the man that he had to become in order to get through those things. And, you know, bands breaking up and coming back together because of those hard issues. Um, I thought a lot about that part of him that I didn't know and realized I was in literally in his shoes, wearing his shoes, yeah, yeah. experiencing yeah, it yeah. and going, wow. Th I mean, this is really anxiety producing, mm -hmm. but in the end, what we're trying to do is make something beautiful, something groovy. This is what it takes to do that. Yeah. I feel that steadiness, that quality of steadiness that would allow someone, you know, to do that. I certainly understood why he was a smoker. <laughs> there was a lot of, <laughs> I really got like, you'd be in that room, uh, working something out and maybe have a kerfuffle like that shit hits the fan with somebody. And all you can do is just, you just, I know him. He just want to walk out, walk around the block, you know, yeah. and then come back in and be like, all right, let's try this again. Yeah, settle you know, the nerves. Try not to get as mad or whatever. Okay. Yeah. What's the second thing? So that was happening for me. So the second thing is that it was a pressure cooker for me because while that was one thing going on, other thing was that I was, for the first time in my life, really opening up to musical possibilities for me. I had just stuck behind the drums and had lots of great experiences with that, but now I was listening to him drumming and the music that I had grown up listening to, not just as an emotional experience, but like, how do you play that? How do you express that? Listening to more than I'd ever listened to the drums, the harmonies, the bass lines and becoming, uh, didn't realize it becoming, um, a producer for the first time. I didn't know this was happening. It was happening organically. People would ask, about the music and Tobin would say, Oh, well, it goes like this. And here's the change. Um, but the emotional part for me was that I was 
I was, I was trying to sing for the first time. I was learning that I might be able to sing while playing drums. The vulnerability in that process, uh, was, was so profound. Mm-hmm. Um, did your dad sing when he played drums? He wrote one song that he sang around the time that I was born. It was probably 1971. It was on a blue cheer album and it was called ecological blues. It's the only song recorded out there that he wrote and sang. That actually was one of the songs that for me kind of broke the ceiling. I, I tried it out and then went, Oh my God, there's something here for me. There's something about these bluesy chords, um, that I felt, I felt like, Oh, I didn't know, but I could, I could, I could make an attempt at this. Maybe this would work. Finding that out and feeling connected to him through a song he wrote that he sang in the middle of having uh, little wars in the room around arrangements and uh, egos of like, well, I have an idea and I'd like to do this way. Those two things at once was a pressure cooker for me. Trying to stay in the vulnerable state of learning about my own musicality and what I had to offer really also trying to drop the ego about this. Like, I'm just a messenger. This isn't about me. Um, this is about my father while trying to lay out boundaries of, you know, I want to invite people to play with us, but I also had to like remind folks that Judy and I were the producers. We were the ones we've invited folks to come and play, but we're producing this. Does that make any sense to the other egos in the room? We're like, well, no, we think it should go this way. Taking leadership and definitely with people a generation older than you is always a challenge um, for lots of reasons. Um, I get the musical initiation. I feel like that's part of what happened. And I want to close up the conversation with Norm soon and move to the Mm -hmm. conversation about Christine. Um, And I have a way I Mm -hmm. think of doing that, but I want to anchor in this one idea that I feel is here which is the, the transmission when, when a parent releases their body, when they're no longer in their body and in the world, and there's 
uh, for me, what happened with my dad is like, okay, he's no longer there for me to project on. <laughs> you know, whatever I, you know, whatever my issue is, he's not there for me to hold that pole for me anymore. So it changed my relationship of how I saw him, not as a, a an individual in one moment in time, but as a life story that is released. And so um, I felt for me an influx. There's a, like a, a, you know, maybe in, I, I think it's Blake's language, a divine influx of spirit that comes in in relationship to that transition. And so I get the kind of musicianship, but I want to get a little bit closer with that relationship with Norm and how you felt in relationship to him mm. being in his seat, one level mm-hmm. understanding his position in his life, another level becoming mm-hmm. your own musician, accepting that, but there you are <laughs> right there, you know, right there with, with him in you and you in him. And I, I just think that's a beautiful moment. And I want to open that up if there's anything to say about that. Yeah, no, that's great, Jeff. That's really good. Um, those experiences that I talked an awful lot about were some of the ways in which I felt a portal open up. And my realization was that the guards that I used to use to keep myself safe from the more challenging parts of my relationship to my father now were unnecessary and a deep love and respect for the man that he was parts of him. I don't understand or parts of them. I was just starting to understand. I realized that I could now be as close to him as I had always wanted to be. And that was profound because I didn't think there was anything more. I felt like we'd at least gotten to that place where we just accepted each other. And that was good enough. But now all of a sudden I was, I, I had come to a new path, a new part of the path, which was that all those deeper yearnings from childhood um, that maybe I had set down or laid to rest uh, and, and maybe guards isn't the right word, but like accepted so I could move on. Now, there were all these possibilities I couldn't have seen before. Mm -hmm. And so this emotional connection to him felt like a portal opened and I had a choice. I could be closer to him and maybe in the ways that I'd always wanted to be. The singularity of Norman as a man in this dimension is gone. Mm -hmm. But like you said, I have all like, it's up to me now. And so if I let him into me, if I feel safe enough to do it, which I did also big surprise. Um, I can carry that relationship forward and I can continue to have a relationship with him. And I do. And now it's through honoring his legacy and it's kickstarting my connection to music. And it's showing me how much more there might be to do. And so I'm now playing music more. I'm recording music. I have ideas. And I sometimes wonder if it's, it's still just a transmission from, from my dad. Because it's not. I don't feel like it's about me anymore. 
I, I feel charged by something. I always wanted this sense that like, if you're going to do music, you really have to have a good reason. And I found the reason. So I'm not going to question anymore. I'm going to do more with it. And I'm excited. And it's a way to keep this relationship with him. So I'm, I'm trying to walk with him uh, as I, as I, as I step forward into uh, a much more creative life, one that I really hope to have, but had maybe put down, thought, eh, maybe not this lifetime. Fazon is what the sun says. If the children of the sun are forced to find another one, they'll greet it with Fazon. And if it likes them, it will reply with Fazon. That's the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate it. This is a labor of love. And there's a few ways you can be in reciprocity and support the How Humans Work podcast. Of course, following us, subscribing, sharing the show matters. Next step above that, leave a review. Tell the world how much you enjoy this podcast. Finally, financial support is awesome. We could definitely use that. It helps us produce shows more quickly invest more time so you can find out ways to donate one time or be an ongoing supporter at howhumanswork.us forward slash podcast. I know your fingers know how to find websites, so go on over there, make a donation, be much appreciated. All right, until next time. <laughs>